If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Hebrews. And we're in chapter 4 is where we're going to take our message out of this morning. Each week we are gathering and we're, we're going through a chapter each week. And uh, on Sunday morning I introduce it and, and we'll preach out of that. And then on Thursday evening at 7, we have what we're calling Thursday Night Live. And it's a Bible study. Uh, and so there's a panel of guys up here, uh, ministers and elders, and we're just kind of doing a conversation as we go through that chapter as well, and in, including people in-house and those online. So uh, we'll take questions and, and try to answer what we can. We can't promise we'll always have the answers, but we'll at least promise that we'll search for the answers and see if they can be found. But uh, Thursday evening, love to have you join us uh, in one of those two ways, either online or here, as we have a new Bible study program on Thursday nights at 7. Um, thinking back a few years ago, I, there was this cute little blonde-headed boy, and uh, he, was, he was in kindergarten class, and I was substituting in the class. And uh, uh, I tell you what, I have a huge respect for kindergarten teachers. <laughs> uh, you've, I mean, there's, there's got to be a special crown in heaven awaiting for, for teachers of that age. I mean, they, those kids, they are everywhere. They're into everything. They're explorers still. And you, you ladies and gentlemen that are in there as kindergarten teachers, my goodness, I, uh, I have a lot of respect for you. Well, as the day went by, as I'm substituting there, this little boy, he was, I mean, he was into everything. He was... Um, highly intelligent and so he would get his work done really quick and then like a lot of these children he wants to be the helper right you know because he's done and so he wants to help the teacher or he notices one of his friends is struggling with the work and so he'd get up out of his seat and go over to his friend and try to give him the answers or her the answers and try to help out with that it was just this constant you know you need to be back in your seat let's wait let them do their work and but he wanted help he was up and down up and down trying to go and everything but eventually as the day went by all of a sudden he you know mr teacher mr teacher okay um and he wanted to know is it nap time yet? No, it's, it's not nap time yet. You know, your teacher's left instructions on when things are supposed to be, and nap time's later on in the day, and so we'll, we'll get there. Okay, so just hang on, you know, but he kept going. And he kept asking over and over again, periodically, is it nap time yet? You know, hey, teacher, teacher, can we, can we take our nap now? You know, and, but he's still, I mean, he was really getting busier. But then I noticed he beginning to yawn. So he was really, he was trying to keep himself awake, I think, with all of his busyness. But as, as, as they went, finally it came time for nap time. And, and he'd heard enough of me saying, not yet, soon. And so they would get their little mats, and they would roll them on the floor, and they were supposed to lay down, and you put on some music, and eventually the kids can either lay there quietly, or they can take a nap. He was out. I mean, he was gone. He was, he was, he was cold. And there was nothing moving him. The noise of some of the other kids right near him rustling around, that didn't bother him. He was, he was asleep. And so normally you let them sleep for a little bit of time, and then nap time is over, let's put our match together, and he's still out. But a note in the teacher's log said, if they're still sleeping, let them sleep. They'll eventually wake up. He slept on, and he slept on. <laughs> and uh, it was interesting. It's, granted, it was nap time. But teachers don't get to rest in nap time. They're still working. They're still doing things. Well, sometimes I feel like that little boy. 
work, 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 work. The day goes on and on and on, and you're just ready to say, is it nap time yet? I need to rest. I want to go down. And we look forward to those times. Well, the people of Israel were experiencing the same thing. See, Moses had just brought them out of Egypt. They're traveling through the wilderness. They're on the march. They're on the go continually every morning. They don't get to go to their nice, comfortable homes and rest in their beds. They are now in tents or they're you know, laying out in the open. Everything's going constantly. And, and if they stop, they have to put things together with the tabernacle. They have to take things apart. They have to constantly tear down and move up because God's moving them around. It's this constant stuff, and they're like, we're ready for our time of rest. God promised us that we would have rest, and he had done that for them. He told them, their forefathers, that he would give them a land that they would be able to inhabit, that they wouldn't even have to go in and build the houses, that they wouldn't have to even work the soil to get the crops ready, that they would go in and just take possession of it, a land flowing with milk and honey. What a wonderful thing, and he would give them his rest. So here we are. In the first three chapters of the book of Hebrews, we discover that there's this new covenant that's taking place, and it's based upon Jesus. And Jesus is greater than any of the other prophets have gone before. He's greater than even the angels who were the messengers of God. He's greater than even Moses, who is this wonderful man that God raised up and brought his people out of their bondage of slavery into this promised land that they were going to receive. And now we discover in chapter 4 that even Jesus is greater than Joshua. And we say, who's Joshua? Joshua was Moses' right-hand man. Not only was he Moses' right-hand man, but when Moses dies... And God buries him up on a mountain. Joshua now is the leader. And he's going to take the people of Israel into the promised land so they can take possession of this land of rest that God has promised them for so many years. So you can imagine what, what they're anticipating as they're finally, after 40 years being in this wilderness, Joshua and the people are standing on the brink of the bank of the River Jordan and they're on the east side getting ready to cross over. However, it's flood season. Here in Union, you know a little bit about flooding. Well, in that same area, the Jordan Valley is just a lowland area, and it flooded at this season. How are we going to cross that river? And God told them, have the priest carry the Ark of the Covenant first and go into the river. And when they do, I'll act. And so they all, they walk into the river, and as they start to step down in, nothing happens, nothing happens until finally all the priests and the Ark of the Covenant are in the River Jordan, and then it stops. It dries up upstream, and it, it, it builds a wall up there, and it comes across, and then God provides dry ground on which they can walk, just like their parents did back when they came across the, the Red Sea. And so they're able to cross the Jordan River and this miraculous event, and they're ready to take over, and God's going to give them this. He's promised them he's going to give them this rest. But the problem happens is, as we discover here in Hebrews, and also when we discover as we read the Old Testament, they didn't get to rest. The rest that God had promised them, it didn't come in the land of Canaan. They didn't get it. Well, why not? Well, to begin with, their disobedience. But let's look at Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, and we'll find out that, that God's rest, even today, is still promised. But it must be claimed. So Hebrews 4, verse 1, Therefore, 
while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So they don't get to go in because they did not unite themselves in faith. They didn't believe and so they were disobedient. And we know that Israel sent 12 spies into the land. Ten were bad and two were good, right? And so the two who were good, Joshua and Caleb, they're the only adults living from the first adults who came out of Egypt other than all their children now. And now those children have grown up after 40 years and now they're adults and they get to go in. But nobody else did because they were not faithful to what God had done. But God makes this promise to them that He's going to give them rest if they will be faithful and obedient. The promise which God gave the people of Israel, our author in Hebrews says that is still available to us today because even the ones who went in didn't get it. Obviously, those who died in the wilderness didn't get it, but what about the ones who went in and took the land? Well, even those whom Joshua led into this land never fully entered the rest because they were disobedient to God's commands. They, they did things that they should not have done, such as they made treaties with some of the people who lived in the land when God had told them to go in and destroy everything, to kill everybody and the land would be theirs. Well, some of the people saw them coming and said, hey, hey, let's make a treaty. We'll live here. We'll let you live wherever you want. You can have our houses. You can have our gold. You can have it. Just don't kill us. And we'll be your allies. We'll support you. We'll help you. And so they said, okay. So they made treaties with the people, and then they began to intermarry with the people of Canaan, which caused some conflict in their faith and their religion, because now the people of Canaan were introducing their religious false idolatry worship to be intermingled with their worship of God and he does not appreciate that either they also were living in the promised land but he did not give them rest because they were not faithful in conquering all the land that they were supposed to take by the time Joshua dies there's still large portions of land that they have not gone after because they just wanted to settle So the promise still stands, and it stands for those who are willing to put their faith and their faithfulness in Jesus. In our text, you and I, as well as the Hebrews of the reading here, they're encouraged to be afraid. Usually God says, do not fear. But here he says, fear. And he wants us to have a fear. He wants us to have this feeling of being afraid of God. And and we know that fear is a strong motivator for our action. I mean, think about it. We've been living in fear just recently because of this COVID-19. The coronavirus has caused us to do things that we never thought we would ever do. And when you're walking through the stores, I have seen when people's eyes, the fear, like, you've got it and you're going to give it to me and you're going to kill me. And so they act in strange ways. And we do things that we never thought we'd ever do. And so fear is a motivator. But we're told here in this passage of Scripture that we're to fear lest what? Lest any of us fail to reach the, the rest that He's given us. So Jesus also encourages us to fear. And He encourages us to fear God rather than man. Listen to what He says in Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, 
and after that have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And listen to what it says now in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We like to talk a lot about the love of God and how we're supposed to love one another. And God is a God of love and all this wondrous and gracious and glorious stuff. But God is still the same God of the Old Testament as He is even in the New Testament today. He's the same God who walked on this world in the bodily form of Jesus and talked about loving one another and gave Himself up as a sacrifice for us. The love of God is preeminent in all of our discussions. But He says, you've got to watch out. We've got to be afraid. We've got to fear what God can do because not only is He willing to give you heaven, but if you're disobedient in this, He's the one that you ought to fear because He can cast you into hell. You talk about isolation and social distancing, that's the worst there's ever going to be. And see, it's true that Jesus taught us fear as a motive to be faithful to God, but it's not the only motive love is as well but we can't make either one independent of itself they have to go hand in hand you have to have both love and this fear and this respect of who God because he is a consuming fire but he is a God who loves enough that he's willing to sacrifice himself they go together hand in hand and there's still this possibility that we still might not receive this rest that he's offering us if we aren't afraid and if we aren't faithful. See, we must claim it by how we live in response to our obedience to Christ. It's a pattern also after God's rest. We see that God rested. We know that God rested. And we saw that after six days of creation on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. And since then, He has been in rest. And here's where there's some confusion that takes place. But let's look at this. It's a pattern of God's rest. So verses 3, through 4, and 5 of Hebrews 4, it says, For we who have believed, we enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of a seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Now, I want you to understand here in Hebrews, the third chapter beginning about verse 11 through the fourth chapter about verse 11, it identifies us four different types of rest that God is willing to interact with us with. The first one is this. It's, we'll call it Canaan rest because it's the rest that was promised to the people of Israel that when they got to the land that he had swore to their forefathers that he was going to give them, the land of Canaan, they would have rest. And God would establish a covenant with them and they would live in peace with him. However, unfortunately due to their disobedience, they didn't get to rest. Now there's a second rest. It's called the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath rest is the rest that God is experiencing since He finished His work in creation. This rest doesn't mean that God is taking a nap. 
like the little fellow wanted to do. But God was still working and still active and still doing things, but he is comfortable with the way things are at. From his perspective, he's already set down what's going to happen. He's already has established his plan for the redemption of the world, and he's just letting it happen. But it doesn't mean like he's a clockmaker that puts it together, winds it up, and sets it off and goes by itself. No, he's still doing things, and he's, he's, he's active in us. Now, a story in John chapter 5, I like the one we had earlier with the children, because the same issue kind of comes up in, John, in, in chapter 9 as it does here in chapter 5. But the story in John chapter 5, there's this man who's laying there, and he's been lame for the 38 years of his life. He, he doesn't walk. He can't walk. And so his friends and his family bring him there every day. They lay him by the, the temple area so he can collect money to take care of his needs. And he begs for people. So Jesus comes up to him and wants to know if he wants to walk. And so, yes, he does. So Jesus tells him to take up your mat and walk, and he heals him. Now, for the first time in his life, this man is walking, and he's celebrating the fact that he's doing this. And the, and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the scribes, they see him walking around carrying his bedroll, his mat, and they get upset. And so they confront him, and they chew him out for carrying his bedroll with him. Like, what do you think you're doing? I'm walking. I'm walking. No, no, we don't care about the walking. What are you doing with the mat? Well, I'm, I'm taking it home. You're not supposed to do that. This is the Sabbath day. And God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You don't do anything on the Sabbath day. Carrying your mat is work. And so they are upset with him and they're chastising him and they want to know who gave him the authority to do that. He says, well, Jesus told me I can do that. And so they go and now they confront Jesus not about him carrying his mat, but because Jesus was doing an act of work by healing him. They're mad at Jesus for healing a man who has not walked for 38 years, and he heals him. And so now they're chastising Jesus for doing something on the Sabbath, because after all, God says the Sabbath is holy and you're not supposed to do anything. And this is Jesus' response to them in John chapter 5, verse 17. He says, my father is working now, and I am working. He wants them to know that God is still working even on their Sabbath day. God is still alive and working. He's not taking a nap. He's active, and so I'm active. Now, we've got not only the, the Canaan rest and the Sabbath rest, but there's also what he says here in chapter 4, the present rest. We've got the ability in our present time to experience the rest of God. So how do we do that? Well, Paul gives us an indication of how we do that. In, First Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, he, he wants us to know that this present rest is all about being content. That we're not anxious, we're not worried, we can actually sleep at night, there's nothing keeping us up. No worries, be happy, right? So here we, we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, it says, For the sake of Christ, then, Paul says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And in Philippians 4.11, he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. We can be at rest. How is it that Christians through the centuries have faced martyrdom and death 
without screaming and crying out, without fighting. They just willingly, some willingly walked to their death content. No matter what the circumstances are, they are at rest in Christ and they find it in Him. And Jesus promises us that type of rest. Listen to what He says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, 29, and 30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants to understand that He is willing to give us rest right now. From all the hardships, all the struggle, all the work that we're having to do on a daily basis, we can then relax, breathe easy, even in the midst of persecution. We can have rest. The fourth rest is this. It's called eternal rest, and it's presented in our text as well. Eternal rest, even though there is this rest which we experience right now in the present, Christians are also going to be able to experience this eternal rest that God is at right now, and we're going to be able to enjoy that in life in the future after the return of Jesus and because of His resurrection and our resurrection into a life. And yet this rest remains. Look at what it says beginning in verse 6 of Hebrew 4. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today. Saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest. Now, it's interesting. He uses that word Sabbath rest there in Psalm 95. And here, right now, it's, it's used here only in Hebrews. Sabbath rest is the only time in the entire Bible that that term is used. Right here. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So God's promises are still true. There's still an opportunity for you and for me not only to experience the rest because Jesus is giving us that opportunity to take our burdens of cast them on him and take up his yoke, but there is still this Sabbath rest that God had promised long ago. And now we will have the opportunity if we're faithful to do that. So he repeats the Psalm 95 again. That word today emphasizes that God's invitation is, is to enjoy rest with Him and to find fulfillment in Him for all eternity. And we can get that today in this present time. Now many years have passed between when, when Isaiah's uh, between Israel's fall in the wilderness and the time David wrote Psalm 95. And the fact that David expressed that that was still available in his time and it's available in our time today means that it has never been fully realized. But we can realize it if we will be faithful and obedient to Christ. The author of Hebrews here is warning his readers that both the blessing of rest and the fear of failure are as relevant to them as they were to the wilderness generation. 
and he's asking us not to harden our hearts so we miss out on it as well. Now, the second aspect that we can learn in this chapter, chapter 4, is this, that his word provides a better diagnosis. Let's look at verse 11 through 13. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, Paul tries to help us understand this as well as he writes to the church in Corinth and he explains to them this opportunity of rest and this opportunity of, of how the Word of God is, is viable for us to help us to grow. So beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank from the, spirit, the same spiritual rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell on a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He'll also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, that message which God has, has made available for us through Christ, it is alive, it is powerful, it is active. It's like a double-edged sword that has the ability to cut through us and know us exactly who we are and what we need. So the phrase, the Word of God, in Scripture, it really has two different meanings to it. The first one is this. It is described as God's personal revelation to world in the form of Jesus in humanity. So both John chapter 1, verse 14, and Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, they tell us that the Word of God was Jesus. So the idea is that Jesus is God's personal message to all humanity. 
But the second way of seeing the Word of God is this. It's also a term that is used to refer to God's message in this world communicated in some form or fashion. Matter of fact, in first chapter of Hebrews, it tells us that it was given to us at many times and in many ways, whether it be through miracles or visions or dreams or uh, speaking through the bush or a donkey. It doesn't matter. There are different ways that God spoke to the people, and it even includes the written word that we have to now because all Scripture is God-breathed. And so we take the words that we've been given in our Bible, and those are the very words of God. And His Word has the ability to diagnose our need, and it points us to a solution for our weaknesses and our sinfulness and our failures. His Word is that powerful. It it has the ability to make us come alive. It's not something that is just black and white written on paper. It is a living thing. And it is active, and it is sharp. And it cuts to our very core of who we are. It discloses the condition of our hearts. And it demands that we have an obedience in our response to Him. Like that double-edged sword, it is designed to penetrate to the very core of who we are. Like a scalpel of a surgeon. as They cut in to remove that which is contaminating in the body. The Word of God goes right to where it needs to work. And it points out our sinfulness. And it has the ability then to take and remove that from us if we live by it. So today, God's Word, it is still speaking to us. It speaks to us every time we open it. It is relevant for every day and every generation. It is never something that is past tense. It is present and it is leading to the future. And so we must turn to the Bible with a conviction that when we read it, it is God speaking to us and giving us direction for our lives, and we must obey and follow it. And through reading the Scripture, God offers us comfort. He offers us insight and and produces warnings and promises. And our experience with Scripture shows us that God's Word is alive and it's active. So what we need then is somebody, an advocate, who's going to stand on our behalf before God because we know that we're failures in this. And that's where this third point in chapter 4 comes into. We're going to discover that His grace and His mercy offers complete forgiveness. Nothing else has ever been able to do that. But but Christ has entered God's very present on our behalf as our high priest. Listen to what it says, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and let us hold fast our confession. You see, the the high priest position that he has, he's going to go before God and and offer up the sacrifice for our sins, just like the, the high priest used to do in the Old Testament covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, the priest worked within the temple. And so we've got a, a little diagram of the temple here for you. Uh, lays it out. There's a lot of different parts and positions in this temple. The outermost area was what they called the court of the Gentiles. So anybody could walk into that outer section. And it was the largest section of all in, in, on the temple mound. And the court of Gentiles was for anybody, Jew or Gentile. Now, a Gentile is anybody who's not Jewish. So it it could be somebody from Egypt or Ethiopia or somebody from uh, China or somebody from Europe. It doesn't matter where they're from. Anybody could walk into that area and worship God from that distance. 
All right, so that's, that's the outer area, and it's the court of the Gentiles. However, there was this little fence, a short little fence, they called the, the balustrade or the sarug in Hebrew, and that little fence was a separation area from the Gentiles to another section where the rest of Israel could go into, the men and the women. And it had written on it, on the post, a warning that only the Israelites who were ceremonially clean could enter in. And if you were Gentile or an unclean Israelite, if you dared pass that sarug and go further, closer to the temple, there was a penalty of death. So you, you kind of move a little bit closer to God. And then once you got past that, then there was this brass doorway, the huge solid brass door took 20 men to open and close it. And it was called the Gate Beautiful. And so you could go through the Gate Beautiful into the Court of Women. And in the Court of Women there was also a marketplace set up to where you could purchase your sacrificial animals, whether it be a dove or a ram or a bull. You could purchase those there. That's where Jesus went into that area and overturned the tables at the beginning of His ministry and at the end of His ministry because they were cheating people there. So the women could go into that court, but no further. And from there, then there was a step stairway that went up into another enclosed section underneath some porticos, Solomon's portico, that, that would give you a place for the men Israelites to go and stand and watch as the sacrifices were being offered even further. A woman could go into that little section, the court of Israel, if she had her sacrifice with her to give to the priest, and then she would have to leave. But as you get into this area there, then there would be three steps up to another platform in which the priest would offer up all their sacrifices. They'd be seen right there, and everything they needed was there. But then you would see the temple itself. Beyond that temple is, is divided into two rooms, and it's an enormous temple. And so it, it stood 90 feet high. And there were 12 steps that led up to the first section of that temple. And it was divided in two places. There was the holy place, and then there was the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And in the holy place, the further right side, that's where the priests would go in with their incense and their sacrifices and all kinds of things, and the showbread and, and, and everything they would do within there for the sins of the people of Israel. But the most holy place... The inner sanctum, that holy of holies, only one priest could ever enter it. It was always the high priest. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would go in there and he would offer up a sacrifice. And he would sprinkle the blood of the bull, the goat, on the mercy seat, which was the, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And God's presence was always presented there above and between the, the angel's wings of the mercy seat. The high priest is the only one who could offer up a sacrifice for the sins of the people to have them rolled away before God. The problem was by the time, this is Herod's temple, by the time Herod's temple came into its building, he had to build it because the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians when they came in and crushed Jerusalem. And at 586 B.C., the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat disappeared. 
never to be seen again, except if you watch the Raiders of a Lost Ark and you know that it's in, a sanct- in, in some kind of warehouse here in the United States. But that's where it was. <clears throat> Even at Jesus' day, they could go in, but there was no mercy seat for them to offer up the sacrifice. Now, a little significant thing about this, there was a curtain between the most holy place and the holy place. The curtain was approximately 90 feet high, maybe six to nine inches thick of different materials that were woven together. And in the moment in which Jesus was crucified and he died on the cross, when he said it's finished and he gave up his spirit, that curtain ripped from the top to the bottom. And they could never offer sacrifice in the most holy place again. So in 72 AD, this temple is destroyed by the Romans. But we have a high priest now, Hebrews is telling us, who doesn't have to go into that place to offer up a sacrifice on the mercy seat because he goes into the very throne room of God in the most holy place at this, in all existence. The very presence of God. And we have this high priest who enters in there. So, that's what we have. Now, now as we go beyond all these things, we, we realize that the author of Hebrews is telling us that the temple is no longer necessary for the people of God to use in order to worship and offer up sacrifices because Jesus ascended even above the heavens and He is there at the right hand of the throne of God and He's offering up intersection on our behalf as our high priest. Jesus has faced all the varieties of trials and struggles and temptations that we have faced ourselves. In Hebrews 15, it says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And we can enter God's presence and receive the spiritual help to meet our needs and to be encouraged as we walk our Christian walk because he says in verse 16, let us then be with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can draw near to the throne of grace? How so? It's because of what Jesus has done for us. No longer do we have to go to a temple. Now we can go directly to God and Christ intercedes on our behalf at the throne of grace. Now this throne of grace, some see it as a reference to Jesus himself. And so that that he is our high priest and emphasizes that God has exalted him and has given him authority over all things. So all we need to do is come to him and receive his help in our time of need. Others see this throne of grace as, as the mercy seat in the heavenly tabernacle of God. And in chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 5, it makes mention of that very thing, that the mercy seat is there in the very throne room of God. And it's the location in the tabernacle which God offers us grace and mercy through our high priest, Jesus. Others probably think, and maybe it's best, that we take the throne of grace simply as it is. It is God's heavenly throne and Christ sits upon that throne at the right hand of his father in heaven interceding on our behalf in the very presence of God and he offers us mercy and strength and and, and giving us what we need in the time that we're under pressure and we're struggling 
and, and he sustains us and, and he gives us the response that we can have contentment even in our time of crisis. Now, as a study in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, there are those three things that I want us to really remember. The first is this, that we receive hope because God has given us the promised rest. Even though they never received it in the past, we can live in it today and we're going to experience the ultimacy of it in the future. The second thing is that we receive this better diagnosis of our needs because the Word of God still has the ability as that scalpel's knife to cut into who we are. Matter of fact, in, in Acts chapter 2, it talks about it when Peter preached the news about Jesus. They said they were cut to the heart and they, all they could do was cry out, what must I do to be saved? Because they honestly saw themselves then as sinners in need of salvation. We receive a much better experience of this divine grace and mercy because of our high priest who is there working on our behalf today. Let me close with just a, a little story about Napoleon. He was preparing for a great battle, and as he's there, they're trying to gather all the troops around it, and they've got a section of guys, that they just really have come into the military, and they're unexperienced, uh, they, they're really undisciplined, and he looks at them, <laughs> And he turns to one of his officers and he says to them, he says, these guys I know nothing about. So his officers, as they march past and, and they show another group, these other guys, they've been through some skirmishes and they, they understand what it is to, to be on the march and the battlefield a little bit. And Napoleon says to his, his general, then he says, now I know some of them. But then finally they come to this regiment. These soldiers had been with Napoleon in every campaign and on every battlefield, and they've gone through the, the, the stress and, and, and the, the roughness of that march to wherever they had to go. They, they've been in the blood of war right there beside Napoleon. And now they're standing with stern conviction on their face that they're ready to go wherever he wants them to go. And then he tells his officers, he says this, these men, I know I can trust. You and I learn to rely on the experiences of many aspects of life. We also learn to rely on the experiences for guidance and strength in the way that we walk as a Christian in our life. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus is approachable. He knows what it is like to be in the battlefield as we have been, expecting and experiencing all the temptations that Satan might throw his way. And he sympathizes with our weakness in this, and he understands the conditions of our hearts, and, and sometimes how we can be so disturbed that our temper flares, or, or maybe we might waver a little bit in our commitment or, or fear of the future. Our, but yet he is there to intercede on our behalf because he wants us to be successful. Most important, however, is the fact that Jesus overcame the sin himself that he faced. The entire gamut of sinful temptations that we have, he underwent as well. He's not immune to the temptations. And as a matter of fact, when he was in the desert for those 40 days in the wilderness, and he's facing Satan himself, Satan actually came right in the presence of Jesus, willing to, to do whatever he could to get Jesus to turn his back on us. From his hunger to his power to his authority, whatever it was, he wanted Jesus to, to be tempted and to fail. But Jesus refused because he knew what was necessary 
for your salvation and mine. And so Hebrews 4.16 concludes with us saying this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So my question is this to you. Will you draw near to Jesus this morning? Will will you offer up your life as a a living sacrifice for Him? Will, Will you be willing to confess Him as your Lord and Savior? Will you be willing to be baptized into His name for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of His Holy Spirit? Are you willing to go and do whatever it takes to demonstrate to Him your obedience and your love for Him? Will you choose to daily do all things that you can for Him so that you can find rest and not lose it yourself. We mentioned about our connection cards. On the back side of it, there is this question that says, what comes next? I'd like to challenge you to, to memorize a verse each week as we're going through things. And this one would be out of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which is, you know, the Word of God is, is sharper than any two-edged sword. You read through those, chapter 4. Maybe some of you need to be baptized. You've never, you've never surrendered to him in that and never been obedient. You've never said, I need to die to myself and be raised to a new life in Christ. You need to do that. Don't put it off. Maybe you just need to be able to share Jesus as your Lord and Savior with other people, that you're going to willingly confess him before men. I don't know where you are, but I do know this. He doesn't expect you to sit back and do nothing now that you've got your salvation or you think you've got your salvation. Doing that, you may fail to, to realize it one day. I'll close with prayer. And then Tony's going to come up and lead us in our time of communion. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we know that what you have done for us through Jesus is remarkable. It's beyond anything we could have ever hoped or imagined. And it's, it's your gift to us. And we understand Jesus is right there in your very presence, interceding for us because we'd blow it. We've messed up so many times. But we're so grateful for him and his love for us and his sacrifice. And Father, for his willingness to, to acknowledge us. May we acknowledge him before others here. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.